0: Now, here we see that God is slow in working out his purposes, but he is not indifferent to our suffering. He has surely seen the affliction of his people who are in Egypt. These two truths must always go together. If God were slow to see and slow to act, that would be intolerable. But rest assured, God sees, God knows, and when the time is right, God will act. God will stir the pot and begin to work his purposes of
1: redemption. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. When the time is right, God will stir the pot and begin to work his purposes of redemption. That is exactly what we are beginning to see here in Exodus chapter 3. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.
0: If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 3. It'd be helpful here to remember the closing words of Exodus chapter 2. The last three verses of chapter 2 read as follows. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Quote. Now, notice that phrase, those many days. This is a long and slow process. A.P. Baker said once God is not in our kind of hurry. Quote. I think it's important for us to understand that. When we get in trouble, we want to be rescued now. When we are sick, we want to be healed now. But God is more crockpot than microwave. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He tends to do things slowly, sometimes over multiple generations. Moses was in the land of Midian for 40 years. That's a long time. That's a long time for the Israelites to be suffering the terrible plans and oppressions that we read about in chapter 2. And that's a long time for God to be working on brother Moses. In chapter 2, he was too sure of himself and too reliant on human means. He needed education and preparation, surely. But 40 years... I remember thinking that seven years of university and seminary was an unreasonably long course of study for becoming a pastor. But here is a man spending 40 years learning how to become a pastor. Remember, the word pastor in English means shepherd. and That is exactly what Moses is learning to be. We see that in the opening words of chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, Most scholars believe that Mount Sinai is near the southern tip of what we call today the Sinai Peninsula. If you know the geography of the area, it is roughly midway between the two northern forks of the Red Sea. The text says that Moses was in the area seeking pasture for the flocks of his father in law Jethro when he saw a very unusual sight a bush that burned but was not consumed. God obviously used that mysterious phenomenon to attract Moses' attention. Moses sees the strange sight and moves closer in in order to examine it further. When he does, God calls to him out of the bush. This is an example of what theologians call theophany, an appearance of Almighty God. Verse 2 says that it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses. And yet, for the rest of the narrative, it is the Lord himself who is speaking. God is the one calling to Moses and speaking directly to him. So what are we to make of this angel of the Lord? D.A. Carson says succinctly, and I think helpfully, this angel of the Lord is some manifestation of God himself. Most scholars take a similar view. So, A.B. Davidson, for example, says, This angel is not a created angel. He is Jehovah himself in manifestation. Identical with Jehovah, although also different. "Close quote. And, of course, as soon as you use a phrase like identical with God, although also different, you begin wondering whether this angel of the Lord should be thought of as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And many scholars go that route. For our purposes, it is enough to say that it is God himself speaking to Moses, the all-powerful and omnipresent one. However, because he chose to appear in a particular location for purposes of revelation, it was therefore appropriate and necessary, given Moses' limitations, for him to do so by means of a recognizable representative. We should probably also just notice that this is the first use of the word holy in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we get the concept of holy time with the Sabbath, but here we get the idea of holy space. Moses is told to recognize that through the relatively simple gesture of removing his sandals. Lastly, we should also notice here that Moses is not receiving a message from a new God. God makes that clear. He says that he's the same God who appeared formally to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is more information about the same God. And that's how your Bible is put together. This is what theologians refer to as progressive revelation. The revelation is consistent and cumulative. That is true from stage to stage within the Old Testament, but it is also true as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. R. Alan Cole says helpfully here, in its day, the Mosaic revelation, while a fulfillment of patriarchal promises, was as new and shattering to Israel as the coming of the Messiah was later to prove to be. Quote. So this is a major turn of the dimmer switch, you might say, that greatly increases the clarity
1: with which the Israelites are seeing and understanding God. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I've always been interested in this. Is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament Jesus? Because if he is, that would absolutely make a ton of sense.
0: Well, I personally feel very comfortable making that equation. But some scholars are slightly more reserved. Bible commentators in general are pretty cautious, so they will usually state the facts and point out the details. But often, they'll be a little bit hesitant to point out what I think we would consider some pretty obvious implications.
1: Right, but the implications here are pretty obvious, (laughs) aren't they?
0: (laughs) Yes, but only on the other side of the cross, only as we're looking backwards through the lens of the New Testament at these stories. So to be clear, I don't think that Moses was thinking in his mind as this happened, there must be at least two persons within the Godhead because God is in some sense omnipresent, and yet... Here, in some tangible form, he's speaking to me as God, and yet as something distinct from God. That, to me, constitutes the beginnings of an argument for the Trinity. I don't think Moses is thinking that. But I can't help but think that, reading from my perspective as a New Testament believer. So I I do think that this is one of those shadowy encounters that looks pretty clear to us in the light of
1: New Testament revelation. And there are a couple of these stories in the Old Testament. We talked about this before back in Genesis, didn't we?
0: Yeah. In in fact, that might be the most compelling example of them all. In Genesis 18, God comes to visit with Abraham. But the way the story is told is absolutely fascinating. So verses 1 to 5 say, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold Your servant, close quote. So, everything about that is interesting. The Lord appeared to Abraham in the form of three men. I mean, come on, that's got to mean something. I agree with you. (laughs) I I think that definitely means something. Everything in this story hints at something going on here. Abraham addresses them as my Lord. Mm. Later in the story, The three men separate. Two go down to Sodom and one stays behind. And the text refers to him as Yahweh. So we have Yahweh and two other personalities that are also in some sense to be identified with Yahweh. That is compelling to say the
1: least. Yeah. And there was something like that in the Jacob story too, wasn't there? Yes. In Genesis 32, 24, the Bible says, and Jacob was left alone and
0: a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Okay, so a man wrestled with Jacob. But then in verse 28 of that same chapter, when the man blesses Jacob, he says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And and then Jacob, in naming the place Peniel says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. That's verse 30. So in this story, we've got a man who is also God, who is also an angel, according to the prophet Hosea. Hosea 12, 3 to 4 says about Jacob, in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God, he strove with the angel and prevailed, he wept and sought his favor. Close quote. So the entity wrestling with Jacob in the story was a man who was God, who was also in some sense an angel or a messenger of God. Come on, that's got to be Jesus. (laughs) Well, I don't see how it could be anybody else. But in the Old Testament, that truth is left in shadow. It is only in the New Testament that the triune nature of God as Trinity, as one God in three persons, is brought into the light. But... It is hinted at pretty strongly in several passages.
1: All right. That was a bit of a bunny trail, but I'm definitely glad we went down it. Let's jump back now into the story at verse 7. Verse 7.
0: Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now, here we see that God is slow in working out his purposes, but he is not indifferent to our suffering. He has surely seen the affliction of his people who are in Egypt. These two truths must always go together. If God were slow to see and slow to act, that would be intolerable. But rest assured, God sees, God knows, and when the time is right, God will act. God will stir the pot and begin to work his purposes of redemption. Notice also that salvation is always from and to. God is going to deliver the Israelites from Egypt and take them to the promised land. As in the Old Testament, so in the New. Our salvation is from and to as well. It is from sin, and it is, to a restored relationship with God, along with all the good and glorious things that go along with that. God tells Moses that he is going to do this work, and as a fulfillment sign, he tells him that he will bring the people of Israel back here to worship on this mountain. Fulfillment signs are interesting because they require the person receiving them to act first in faith. In essence, God is saying, Obey me and see if I don't do for you exactly as I am promising to do. It would take a great deal of faith to believe that one day a ragtag congregation of escaped Hebrew slaves would worship God on this mountain. This mountain wasn't even on the way to the promised land from Goshen. It was completely off the beaten track. So if they ever made it here, surely it was God who was leading them. Verse 13. that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is not the first time that we encounter the name of God in the Bible. The name of God, Yahweh, appears in Genesis many times, but this is the first time that the name is explained. The flow of the story leads us to understand that in the generations following the time of the patriarchs, the people of Israel in Egypt had begun to be paganized. They had lost their intimate knowledge of God. They had become religiously Egyptian, or at least religiously syncretistic. So here, by means of this special revelation, they are being brought back deeper than ever before into intimate relationship with their covenant God. Now, as for the meaning of the name, we're told in the ESV translation that it means, I am who I am, and most translations offer something very similar. The JPS Torah commentary says, either it expresses the quality of absolute being, the eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence, or it means, He causes to be. Quote. I suspect it intends to be understood in both senses. The name of God seems to be saying, I am the one who has existed forever and who has the power of life within himself. And that makes sense because logically, in order for anything to exist, something must have existed forever that has the power of life within itself. There are only two potential candidates for that something, either God or the universe. But the Bible begins with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this name is consistent with that revelation. God is the one who has existed forever and who has the power of life within himself. And this God is now speaking to Moses and now moving to save his covenant people from cruel bondage. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, it has sometimes troubled modern Western readers to see God here instructing Moses to ask Pharaoh for permission for the Hebrews to take a three-day journey into the wilderness. We know that this was never going to be a three-day journey. This was a permanent departure. So, is God misleading Pharaoh? Most scholars believe that this is just an example of our unfamiliarity with ancient Eastern customs. This was how requests were made in a humble and polite fashion. This is how bargaining worked. You began with a very modest request. If that were granted, you would up the ante a little bit. Think, for example, of Abraham's negotiation with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This sounds an awful lot like that. So this was always going to be a permanent departure. But Moses was to begin with a very humble and moderate request, which Pharaoh arrogantly and tyrannically refused, thus setting up the power encounter that God had willed in the first place. The Lord will show himself on behalf of his people. He will set them free and he will send them out, not only with permission, but laden with gifts and reparations. Yahweh is merciful, powerful, and just. Thanks be to God.
1: Pastor Paul, in the second half of that episode, you talked a fair bit about the name of God and you pronounced it as Yahweh, but in some older translations, the name of God is pronounced as Jehovah. Why is that? Yeah, that can be a little bit confusing. In Hebrew, out of an abundance
0: of deference and caution, there are no vowel markings on the word for God, the word for God's name. So we just have four consonants, Yod, Chet, Wav, and Chet which together are known as the Tetragrammaton. Around the 3rd century BC, the Jewish people stopped using the name for God in public worship, replacing it with the more generic Adonai, which simply means Lord or Master. So anytime you were reading the Torah and you saw those four consonants, you actually said the word Adonai. And then in the 6th century AD, it became common to put the vowel markings for Adonai around the consonants for Yahweh to help remind people how they were supposed to pronounce it. And that actually produced the Latinized pronunciation of Jehovah, the vowels from one word and the consonants from another. But the original pronunciation was actually closer to Yahweh. And so that is slowly becoming standard again in the academic world and also, to some extent, in
1: the liturgy of the church. Hmm. Cool. But, I mean, how come most of our modern translations don't use either Jehovah or Yahweh in these stories? Yeah, that's,
0: in my opinion, a bit of an unfortunate trend. The main modern English translations, so that would be the King James Version, the NIV, the NASB, and the ESV, all translated Yahweh as Lord following the ancient Jewish tradition. So in your Bible, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is translating the word Yahweh, the personal name for God. And then when you see in your Bible capital L, but then small o-r-d, that is translating Adonai, the generic word for master or sovereign or Lord. But most of us fly right over that as we're reading our Bibles, and as a result, we miss the meaning of passages like this one we just read in Exodus 3. Now, some translations are getting away from that tradition, and they are going back to translating the name as Yahweh. So, for example, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, does that for this passage. They have Exodus 3.15 this way. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So that makes it clear that in this passage, God is introducing himself to Moses in a more intimate way. He is saying, I want you to know my name. I am Yahweh, the creator and
1: the redeemer of his people. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, and I have to fully admit, I have read right over that capitalized L-O-R-D, and I had no idea that it stood for Yahweh. So I think it would make things way clearer for people if we got back to that, and it isn't disrespectful to say God's name, is it? No, God
0: tells us his name in this passage. If it was disrespectful for his people to say his name, then he wouldn't have told his people his name, but he did. I think that means that God wants us to be on intimate terms with him. As long as you say the name of God with love and respect, then I think that's absolutely fine. Now, what's important for us to notice here is that God shares his name and defines his name in terms of his coming work of redemption. He's he's saying, I am Yahweh, and that means the God who saves. That's who I am. So, as we said in the program audio... The name itself seems to mean life or source of life, and the narrative attached to the name, which is the narrative of the Exodus, suggests that we should hear that, not just in terms of physical life, but in terms of redeemed life. God creates us and he saves us so that we can live the lives we were originally intended to live, thanks be to God.
1: Amen. What a great explanation. I can't wait to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet